Welcome to MPOD, a podcast on peace, security, and justice, produced by students and staff at the Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University, Belfast. In this episode, we'll be speaking about women and gun violence. Some of these clips and segments may be emotionally triggering for their discussion of gun violence and for those killed by gun violence. So just to remind, the Queen's Wellbeing Service offers a drop-in service every weekday during term time from 12.30 to 1.30 p.m. You can also contact the Wellbeing Service at 028-9097-2893 or by email at studentwellbeing at qub.ac.uk. You can also listen to our first episode of MPOD on mental health and well-being for more information. When you think about gun violence, you often think about those most prominent in the media. The headline-grabbing mass shootings. Horrific tragedies of mass proportion that tear at our consciousness. Some translate this immense sadness into activism, creating the gun violence prevention movement. But these advocates cannot be reduced to one story, one experience with gun violence, whether it be a headline grabbing mass shooting or a mass shooting that is an act of intimate partner violence with a firearm or death by suicide or homicide. Gun violence is a broad term, often betraying the complex nature of the issues and people who mobilize to address it. These complexities are not just different experiences one has with gun violence, but also include the intersecting identities of those affected, as gun violence does not just impact one type of person. These intersections are currently not being discussed to the extent they ought to be, inhibiting the ability of the movement to progress past its initial reactions to crime. Today's episode of MPOD will thus focus on the women of the movement seeking to understand just one layer of gun violence prevention. Today, there are many notable female names in the gun prevention violence movement. Um, Lucy McBath, notable for her work with Mothers of the Movement and recently elected Congresswoman in Georgia. Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action. Gabriel Giffords, the co-founder of Giffords Courage to Fight Gun Violence and Chris Brown, the president of Brady United Against Gun Violence, among many others. These three women are all powerful leaders within the gun violence prevention movement. However, women have not always been at the forefront. So today's MPOD episode will focus on the rise of women's leadership within this movement. We'll hear first from master's student Elizabeth Cherish, who is also the student producer of this episode. After Elizabeth, we'll be in conversation with Poe Murray, the co-founder and chairwoman of the Newtown Action Alliance and the Newtown Foundation. And first, I'd like to introduce Elizabeth. Elizabeth Cherish is a master's student in the Conflict Transformation and Social Justice Program at the Mitchell Institute here at Queen's University, Belfast. She is originally from Newtown, Connecticut, and she's been involved with the issue of gun violence since she was 16 years old. This was the year of the school shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, which happened in Elizabeth's hometown. 
In that incident, 20 students, all between five and six years old, were killed, as well as six educators. Elizabeth has since expanded her initial role as an advocate to one of a researcher, examining the intersections of race, gender, citizenship, and firearms within the movement. Elizabeth began her research with the support of Dr. Mary Bernstein at the University of Connecticut, and she's continuing that research now here at Queens. Elizabeth has been published in Teen Vogue, in U.S. News and World Report, and in Northern Slant, and she's spoken about these issues in the gun violence prevention movement at national and international events and conferences. She's also the student founder and one of the student producers for MPOD. So Elizabeth, it's great to be in conversation with you today on the podcast. It's a true honor to be here and just really neat to get to talk about something um, that is so important and so ignored within the movement. Great. So Elizabeth, why focus on women within the gun violence prevention movement? So when we think about gun violence prevention, you think about the origins of gun violence prevention, they don't include women in the same way that women have kind of taken ownership over the issue today. And it really began even back to the foundation of the U.S. as a means of racial control in the way we think of gun violence prevention um, and gun regulation. And it was a way to inhibit access for indigenous people to fight insurrection on um, newly conquered lands within the states and a way to protect property um, outside of this indigenous invasion or Native American invasion um, in the form of protecting um, enslaved African-Americans on the plantations down south. And so the origins of gun violence prevention were really the origins of racial control in the way you think about it in that way. But it's become so much more evolved and so much different than that. And the focus is now not necessarily on racial control, but on the actual violence prevention aspect of how many there's 38,000 people that died in 2016 because of a firearm and because of firearm violence. And this is what the movement now seeks to address. Um, even if you move on throughout the history of gun violence prevention, um, if you look in the early 1900s, I think is most notable, there's the Sullivan Act of 1911. It was passed as a reaction to the increased violence of immigrant communities in New York City. And so what was happening because these areas didn't have policing in the same way they have now, didn't have that protection mechanism by the state, individuals were arming themselves. And they would go to the saloon or the pub or whatever, you know, your classification for a bar is, and get drunk and then get into fights and use pistols in battles with each other. Or they would discharge because they didn't have the safety features that firearms have today and would injure themselves. And so uh, the um, representative for the area um, with the last name Sullivan introduced this act as a way to specifically curtail ownership um, for firearms to that particular population that was injuring themselves. And at the time, um, Franklin Roosevelt was the governor of New York and really liked the idea of having a measure of prevention that it was incredibly effective. And how could he then implement it across the state? Um, and this was at the back of his mind when in the 1930s, there was a lot of mob violence going on, same kind of populations, um, but a different origin. So with the rise of, or with the prohibition, you see this informal market starting and it's a group or a population that doesn't have access to the formal market in the same way that 
the typical American um, defined more the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, in terms of the 1930s context would have. And so these informal markets start, and it's similar if you look at gang violence in the same way today, um, and there's increased violence, but it's with fully automatic and semi-automatic rifles. And so with this in the back of his mind from his time as governor um, in New York, Roosevelt proposes this legislation. It's the first federally mandated law to prevent firearm violence, and that's National Firearms Act of 1935. And then you have the Federal Firearms Act of 1938. Um, and what these two bills really seek to do is they control the violence in a way that inhibits particular ownership. And it's framed very much as an issue of crime prevention. And because it's crime prevention, it's mainly men involved with that. So you don't really see women taking ownership over the issue. Um, and you see the same thing happen again in the 1960s with the assassinations and the riots, um, as well as the anti-war movements. And so there's also, because of the end of World War II, there's this massive surplus of firearms that flood into the U.S. And initially in 1957, when the first Gun Control Act of this decade was introduced, it was meant as a way to protect industry in Massachusetts. Um, Senator Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, when he was the senator from Massachusetts at the time, was a huge proponent of this bill. And it really allowed for the protection of the market and thinking of it more from an economical interest. Fast forward a couple of years and you have the riots and you have the assassination of JFK, Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, and Robert F. Kennedy. And the conversation becomes one again of crime, not necessarily one of economic protection. And men are still centered at the beginning of this or at the root of this conversation as to what exactly violence prevention should be. Um, and it wasn't really until the 90s that you again, well, you again see this in the early 90s as an issue of crime prevention. Um, but then school shootings begin to really shift that conversation forward into a way that's not just crime, but how can we make it more of a conversation about safety um, and not just public safety, but child safety. Great. That was such a rich history. I mean, there's so much more that we could unpack and talk about through everything that you've just mentioned. I'm curious, though, how did women then become involved within the movement you know, with this history that you've just laid out? What was the turning point that women started getting involved? The real moment that a woman became involved would have to be the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan in the early 80s. And this is the moment that Sarah Brady, who was the wife of James Brady, who was the man who was injured or had the fatal in or not fatal injury, but um, had was severely injured by that attack, um, starts to think about the issue of gun violence prevention. And the Bradys were Republicans like Reagan, um, but it wasn't until her son um, had found a gun. There's some story in which there was a gun involved with her child that she became concerned as a mother. And so you start to see motherhood framing within the gun violence prevention movement. And she calls up the NRA and says, well, you've never heard of me. My name's Sarah Brady, and you better watch out. Something to that effect. And it's really this mindset of mothers beginning to take ownership as a means of child's protection. But that was only Sarah Brady, really, at that time. And she's the one who pushes forward the Brady Bill, which is the reason we have background checks today. And then you have the school shootings start to happen in the 90s. And there had always been school shootings, most notably in 1965 with the clock tower shooting out of UT Austin. But in the 90s, it becomes a lot more prevalent, and it happens a lot at high schools. And then Columbine happens. And so you had a bunch of more minor school shootings, um, if you can use such a term to describe a school shooting. Um, 
And maybe I'll just interject here, Elizabeth, for maybe some of our listeners from Northern Ireland. Can you explain what Columbine was and why that mattered so much? Most definitely. So Columbine was a shooting that happened in 1999, April 20th. And um, two young students um, had obtained firearms through a friend that had straw purchased for them at a gun show. So the guns were legally bought um, and they used it to kill and injure um, students at their high school. And I forget the exact numbers. I think it was... It was, it was a very large amount of students injured. I know at least 20 were wounded um, and in the double digits of students killed. And it was one of the largest casualty counts at that point of time because, unfortunately, the scale has moved past that um, when we talk about gun violence at, school sh- at schools. Um, but it was the first time that America really had to come to grapples with the fact that kids were being murdered at such a high rate and being injured at such a high rate in their school. And it wasn't just guns that um, the two killers had brought into the um, into the high school in Columbine. They had also set up explosive devices, um, which thankfully didn't go off and um, would have created more casualties. But it was really that apex moment in which America had to come to terms with this is more than just you know one shooting um, by Barry Lukaitis in you know a small town somewhere. This is another school shooting in this small town, another school shooting in this small town. This is a school shooting that's killed a bunch of kids and their children, and they should have been going to high school and should have been then progressing on to go to college, and they don't have that opportunity to do so anymore. And it really humanized it just because of the sheer numbers of individuals killed and wounded, that this was something that was a larger issue. And so what happened after Columbine is the conversation shifts, and the conversation becomes a lot more about our kids are being affected, so how can we protect our children? And so Donna Dees then starts this movement, starts this march in Washington, D.C. that happened in, um, the 2000, in 2000, and it's called the Million Mom March. And it's this first big movement of women you see outside of Sarah Brady's great activism in the 80s and the 90s and continued for the rest of her life. But it's more than just Sarah Brady at this point. It's an entire movement of women who are concerned about the issue of gun violence um, and want to do something to protect their children. And so uh, tons and tons of women take on D.C., and they become involved in this Million Mom March. And then grassroots groups start outside of that as well and are incorporated under the Brady campaign, which is a group that Sarah Brady ran. And so this shift in conversation really takes it away from just an issue of crime prevention dominated by men, but one about child safety that women can interact with as well. Wow. So I remember Columbine. That really was just such a turning point. And Um, Being in school at the time, those of us who were school kids and the way our teachers and parents and principals started really taking school shootings seriously. So that's so interesting that that was really a turning point for women's involvement also. Can you say a bit more then about what does the movement look now post-Columbine? How has it changed since then? It really started to quiet down in the immediate aftermath. Um, So you see this big mobilization in 2000, and then it starts to peter out. There are still school shootings that are going on, but there's no collective organized movement. I think the Brady campaign was the only national organization still standing at the time. There's also the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, but they weren't involved in that political advocacy in the same way you see the gun violence prevention movement today, um, where it's much more of a politicized issue. And then Sandy Hook happens, and there's this huge shift once again of mothers becoming involved as an issue of safety because 20, 
four and five year olds die in an elementary school week before Christmas. And a lot of the parents still talk about how they had the gifts wrapped and ready to put under the tree. And that image seems to resonate again and starts to mobilize millions of more women in a way that hadn't even been mobilized with the first march in 2000 and even after Columbine. And I think a lot of that had to do with how young the children were and just how brutal the timing was. And not that it's supposed to happen anywhere, but just the idyllic nature of Newtown itself. It's one of the most incredible towns anyone can ever visit. Um, and I'm also biased, but it's a really beautiful place and really incredible people and just an incredible community. And so uh, this starts to agitate people once more. And Shannon Watts, um, who's a mom from the Midwest, starts this organization through Facebook called Moms Demand Action. And you don't have social media in 2000 um, to the same extent that you have it today or you had it in 2012. And so women then begin to have this platform in which they can engage with each other in a way that isn't intrusive to what they're doing in their lives. They don't have to show up to a meeting if they don't want to. They can have these conversations in their homes and they can talk about the issues of child safety that have always been at the forefront of their mind, but now they have the platform to do so. Now they have the collection and the group to do it with. And you see a resurgence once again of these national gun violence prevention groups. So Brady begins to take a new form. You see the rise of the Giffords organization, which was at that time Americans for Responsible Solutions, led by Gabrielle Giffords, who had, or had been in a shooting incident herself um, with an assassination attempt on her life in Tucson just a year prior. And so you see these individuals, these survivors coming forward and sharing their stories once more. And it's also including the students and their families from Columbine. And so it becomes this big family, quote unquote, of individuals who have been affected by something so horrific. And, but even within that, there's still this dance that goes on with the need to protect and need to defend and need to really create space for yourself in a movement that's only been understood as gun rights. Because in the time after Columbine, we see a lot of measures that go forward in Congress that enhance the rights of gun owners, which is fine. But the issue with them that is, is that this violence prevention that becomes so inherent within the movement is lost because you can't hold manufacturers accountable for the firearms that are killing tons and tons of children and tons and tons of people every year. And there's no safety mechanism involved in the same way that you would have a safety mechanism for a car, same way you would have safety mechanism for tobacco. You have to be informed about the risks of owning such a weapon. And it's there's no conversation like that that's being happened, that's, that is happening. Um, even the bill that was introduced after Sandy Hook is framed as a way to protect the Second Amendment. And violence prevention isn't going to inhibit your ability to exercise your Second Amendment rights. It's meant to organize them in a way that you still have the ability to exercise those rights. But those individuals who are dying at exorbitant rates have those protections that the government ought to be and needs to be um, supplying its citizens. And women really drive that conversation after Sandy Hook in a way that you don't see or you didn't see after Columbine. Um, and that's kind of how it begins to shift post-Columbine to a way that involves more women and is more accessible. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, what you said with after Columbine, um, after this beginning of the mobilization of the gun violence prevention movement really did go parallel with 
really was a resurgence of gun rights activism as well. So you had these two movements and it's been really interesting just to hear how mm. the the gun violence prevention movement and women's space in it specifically has really had to push against that other force. And, and we've heard that we've heard that force so loudly coming from the United States. And it was interesting to me how you mentioned the social media aspect and how that allowed so many people to connect. I'm curious, though, um, how did things like the Women's March, things like that were were actual people coming together in a physical space, what kind of effect did that activism have and how did that affect the ability for women to mobilize? I think largely with the women's movement, what was really neat about that is that it's the first time that women could be advocates as women, not just as mothers. And so, so oftentimes, even in today, in which we've seen a lot of progress in the States, for gender inclusivity and gender equality, there still aren't those spaces for women to advocate in the same way that men have always had the ability to advocate. And so it was really amazing about the Women's March, and I was so honored that I got to go, and still is one of the best experiences of my life, is that there's the physical presence of women saying, we're not going to tolerate this. And it's not just we're not going to tolerate this as you know my partner's wife, or I'm not going to tolerate this as you know an aside, or as just a mother, it's I'm not going to tolerate this as an individual, as a human being. And there's other individuals and we're coming together and we're advocating for this issue that we care about. And gun violence becomes part of women's issues. And it becomes part of these larger conversations that we're having about inequality and about injustice. And what's so neat about just the physical coming together, not just the online spaces, which were great as a way to prep women to have those conversations in person, it's these conversations, these women that you've never met before, you now know when you meet in person. And so those bonds that may have been difficult to form with individuals who were not necessarily like you in that same way, you can unify around. And you can have these amazing debates and create a movement that's much more intersectional than the initial movements were because those were the only women that had access to that. And now every woman can access that. Um, so it's just really neat to see even post women's movement or post the women's march, those conversations continuing and those debates, even if they're divisive, still occurring and still having the space to occur. Um, and that recognition of you as an individual on top of the other identities that you have, but your humanity is being acknowledged first, which I don't think you really see until the women's march, um, which is what's so incredible about the activism after that. Yeah, and it seems to me that the activism shifted a bit after um, after Parkland as well. So where is the movement now? Where is it going? And how do you see the role of women as it moves forward? What was really neat about Parkland was that it was the first time you saw survivors speaking out in such a large number um, because the majority of survivors from school shootings were young kids who didn't have the same kind of ability to mobilize. So for Sandy Hook, for example, all those kids were babies and were just so young that it. there's no way that you can advocate for yourself at seven years old in front of a congressman about, you know, the right to bear arms or, you know, this right to prevention from gun violence or this right to have life outside of gun violence because you're seven years old. Um, but these were kids who were 16, 17, 18 years old. And they understood in those five years after Sandy Hook that this isn't something that's going away. They grew up in a culture of Sandy Hooks. And so it wasn't just something that happened one day and, oh, this is really sad and I can't believe this happened again. It's I've been constantly living in this. 
And now you see students saying, I can advocate for my rights because I'm going to be voting next year. And I remember um, when I I registered to vote, I think when I was 16, I pre-registered. I was really excited. And you start to see other students having that same kind of excitement and using that political messaging as a way to further mobilize and bringing other voices on board with them. And as much as, you know, women would like to bring as many people as possible, it really takes that youth voice to do so. And it's the first time we've been talking about Chicago in the same breath we mentioned Parkland. And you don't see those kinds of intersectional debates about everyday gun violence and have that same kind of platform, even within the women's movement, um, because you needed that young perspective to do so. And so what's really incredible post-Parkland is that they're bringing those conversations forward. They're driving those different messages that are much more intersectional than even the women's movement could ever be. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with the youthfulness, the insightfulness, and just the horrific experiences of those individuals having to grow up, not just enduring that shooting, but having to live in a culture in which that shooting happens every day. Um, And so that's what I think is really neat about where the movement is going to go, is that people are fed up. And it's similar to here in Northern Ireland, the violence just gets to be too much. And you can't just sit down anymore and you can't just let it continue to happen. You have to coordinate and you have to take action against it. And it's the youth and it's the people who are making that change um, and taking action on that and becoming advocates who didn't think they had the ability to become advocates before, which is truly inspiring and just amazing to watch. Absolutely. And on that last point, too, we've been speaking mostly about the United States context. You know, Elizabeth, you've been living here in Northern Ireland for the last year. Are there any insights, um, reflections that you've had from living outside the U.S. and how that's changed any of your thoughts on mm-hmm. gun violence prevention or women's roles? Um, anything that you've seen here or anything that you could share here um, that, uh, that, might be, that might be interesting that you hadn't thought about before? So it's been absolutely amazing living here. Um, and I've been really lucky and really fortunate to get involved in the community through different mentoring programs with young people in Belfast, as well as through different peace building organizations um, and just the speakers that are brought into the classes. And one of the things that's amazing to me is I was talking with some young people at one of the mentoring programs I run. Um, And it's an area that would be somewhat similar to how the U.S. would perceive the south side of Chicago. A lot of violence, a lot of crime, a long history of paramilitary involvement, um, which I would kind of just equate for the U.S. context to gang violence. Um, And I was talking with the young men that I work with, and they never in a million years would want to own a gun. They don't see a point to it. Um, they recognize that that's not something that they would want in their house. They wouldn't want that near them. They wouldn't want that near their friends. And it was one of those amazing moments of, if you think of the U.S., that's a rite of passage if you are affiliated with an organization back home is getting your first gun. And that's not at all even for someone who would be similarly situated, quote unquote, over here in Northern Ireland. That would be even, you wouldn't want that. You know, you work so hard to achieve peace why exactly would you want to bring that violent mechanism back into your life? And even if it's seen as a tool back home, it still brings violence with it. There's still, you know, the potential for violence to occur, even if it's being used in a way that's safe and it's being stored in a way that's safe. And that's fantastic that it is in that way. As well as from the women's context, I've been really privileged to work 
with women in a border town um, here in Northern Ireland, as well as a young woman in the same community center here in Belfast. And seeing, they're just the most amazing people in the world, but seeing the similar kinds of dances that have to be done of, oh, I can't say that because I'm not allowed to say that. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, the men in my community get to decide. And I think, you know, even if we go back within gun violence prevention, we see the way that the movement has evolved to protect the Second Amendment is a similar kind of way of saying, oh, we can just let the men decide as to how exactly this movement should progress. And there are tons of women who, you know, um, keep in bare arms as well. And I'm not delineating it as just a masculine right, but it's that protection of masculinity that you can understand within the movement and the the f almost scared nature of wanting to address all those different complexities and those different layers within those conversations we have about gun violence. And so, but they're still having those conversations, which is amazing. And even in a society that doesn't necessarily give the space or um, see those different stories as at the same level or at the same worth, they're still speaking out. And that's something that I find so incredibly inspirational for when I go back home is even if you're a 15 year old girl who's been told your entire life that what you're saying isn't necessarily the same as what your 15 year old brother is saying, you're still gonna speak out and you're still gonna own it. And I think that's something that's really important to bring back within the US is we can't be afraid anymore that we're going to we have to we have to dance or tread so carefully among conversations we're having about life and death because it is an issue of life and death. Um, it'll be a, almost another hundred people that will die today because of gun violence in the states, and it's no longer oh you know we don't want to offend anyone or seem like we're infringing on someone's bear, right to bear arms because you're not. You're talking about the protection, not just of that individual's rights, but the protection of those individuals' life, and that's a conversation that I don't think we've necessarily had yet within the movement and a conversation um, we're comfortable having, but I think we need to move past that discomfort um, and really learn from the young women here that you don't have the time or the space to just sit back. You really need to take action. Well, your work here and in the U.S. really is inspiring. And just thank you so much for sharing so many of your experiences and insights with our listeners today. I think we've all definitely learned a lot. And um, I know in just a few minutes, Elizabeth will be in further conversation with Poe Murray, who's the co-founder and chairwoman of the Newtown Action Alliance and the Newtown Foundation. So please stay with us for that. All right, so we're very lucky to be joined today by Poe Murray, who is the co-founder and chairwoman of the Newtown Action Alliance and the Newtown Foundation. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Poe. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, so we're just going to, our podcast today is about women in the gun violence prevention movement. Um, so just want to hear a little bit about how you got involved with the movement. Um, yeah, so... On de December 14, 2012, uh, regrettably, my neighbor um, shot his mother in her bed, uh, killed her, and then traveled down to the Sandy Hook Elementary School and killed 20 children and six educators. Uh, many of them were uh, uh, you know, my neighbors, and many of the teachers uh, were educators for my four children that attended the Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, thankfully for us, uh, our youngest, uh, 
Tommy graduated from San Diego Elementary School about a year and a half uh, before the incident. Um, but on that day, um, our hearts broke and we recognized that we needed to be in this fight to end gun violence in America. So, um, you know, we began to rally the community to take action. And so you took action in the form of Newtown Action Alliance. Can you describe a little bit of how you joined and then your work as chair um, in the organization? Sure. So um, initially, when I helped to organize the activists in the community to join the gun violence prevention movement, um, I was uh, one of the co-founders of the Sandy Hook Promise, um, but as Sandy Hook Promise was preparing um, its mission and strategy, um, there was a real need for activists to lobby state legislature to pass a set of strong gun violence prevention measures in Connecticut because we recognized the fact that um, it was absolutely necessary to change the conversation um, on a national and federal level. So um, I helped um, uh, Dave Ackar, uh, uh, one of my neighbors, to form the Newtown Action Alliance uh, so that we can you know, begin those um, efforts to uh, change the laws here in Connecticut. And we quickly pivoted to uh, making uh, congressional visits uh, to Washington, D.C., so that um, you know, we can we could advocate for federal laws because we knew that just passing Connecticut laws uh, would, would not be enough to keep all Americans safe. That's really awesome. Um, and I know that some of the work that you've done within um, those legislative efforts have included bringing the assault weapons ban back into the conversation. Um, and I know that there's been, or there had been a lot of, um, hesitancy to address the issue of assault weapons. Um, so can you explain a little bit of your work on that and your campaign with hashtag weapons of war and just how that came about? Sure. Um, after we passed an assault weapons ban in Connecticut, um, we felt that that should be part of the policy priorities for the gun violence prevention movement. Um, however, by the time we joined the conversation, um, on a national level with the other uh, you know, gun violence prevention groups, uh, it was decided that it would be best to take an incremental approach by mm -hmm. wrapping our arms around the background check bill. Um, it was called the Mansion Toomey, King Thompson um, on the House side, and um, all the gun violence prevention groups wrapped our arms around it. We collaborated. And, uh, you know, we had believed that that background check bill, although written by the NRA, um, <laughs> with many giveaways to the NRA, that it would be bipartisan and it would pass, you know, with a, with, um, with a sweeping support. But as we all know, that did not happen um, because of the filibuster rule um, in the Senate. And um, since then, you know, we observed the uh, the gun violence prevention community very carefully, and <laughs> as mass shootings, you know, continue to increase, um, 
we decided that we really needed to push the reset button and not continue on a path of settling for the low-hanging fruit incremental approach because we were dealing with a radical um, gun extremist uh, fueled by the NRA and other gun lobbyists uh, to push their guns to anyone agenda. Meanwhile, we were basically begging for scraps. <laughs> and we decided that after the horrific Orlando shooting that we really had to push the reset button. So um, I spoke to my friend who was leading States United to prevent gun violence. And we decided that we were going to start a campaign against assault weapons um, using the hashtag weapons of war. And um, we you know, drafted a letter asking Congress and president to pass the assault weapons ban. And we began to garner support, uh, uh, organizational support um, from inside and outside of the gun violence prevention movement. And also we worked really closely with David Cicilline, Rep. David Cicilline um, from Rhode Island, who introduced the assault weapons ban bill. Um, on the House side, and also with Senator Feinstein, who introduced the assault weapons ban um, on the Senate side. So we worked with them, and we've been working for many years now to uh, garner co-sponsors for you know those bills. And when David Cicilline reintroduced the House version of the bill for the 116th Congress, uh, we were able to uh, garner the support of 191 co-sponsors oh, wow. more, more than ever. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, we believe the, the um, Americans are ready for an assault weapons ban. 67% of Americans support it. And, um, you know, we're pushing for the gun, the entire gun violence prevention community to support the mm -hmm. assault weapons ban because not all of them do. Um, mm. And, you know, we are, um, we are engaging, you know, the Americans and even presidential candidates to talk about an assault weapons ban and to push for it um, going forward. That's truly incredible. Um, and I know you're talking about the coalition with States United and the other people um, within the movement who are supporting it. Um, how important is that coalition building within getting those create that incredible amount of co-sponsors on the bill or even the marches and the vigils that are hosted uh, across the country? Yeah, it's um, it's critical that we have consensus from within our own gun violence prevention community on a set of policies. And we strongly believe that assault weapons ban and even uh, federal uh, firearm licensing and registration mm -hmm. has to be part of the equation because, you know, we're, we're just simply losing too many Americans to gun violence every single day. You know, 108 Americans are killed by guns and then another 200 plus are getting injured by guns every single day. And it's just, you know, not acceptable. So the low hanging incremental approach has not been effective um, the gun violence prevention movement has not been able to work to pass a single federal legislation, mm -hmm. um, you know, in 25 years since the, you know, Brady law and the assault, the original assault weapons ban passed. So 
it's really time for us to to be more aggressive and unapologetic in our stance because lives are at stake. You know, um, as you're aware, we work with families that have been directly impacted by gun violence from all over this nation, and you know, it's really hard to watch them go through the daily um, pain of, of having lost their loved ones to gun violence. It's, it's tragic. Um, so we really can and must do more. That's incredible. Um, and in this need to can and must do more, do you think that your identity as a woman within the movement has affected your activism and building out these coalitions and really paying attention to the voices within the movement? So um, being a mother of four children, (laughs) (laughs) I had to be extremely organized in uh, raising my children. Um, But yes, uh, uh, it's difficult to know uh, the role, you know, my role as a woman in in what we've been able to accomplish. Um, But I I do know that um, as a minority uh, women in the space where majority of the leaders are white men. Um, you know, you have to demonstrate um, uh, your ability to uh, to take action by, um, you know, consistent messaging and communication and in-person meetings. So, you know, perhaps I had to work harder as a minority female in the movement, you know, to get the respect and um, that that others may not have garnered, right? I, mm-hmm. I mean, they may have garnered without that much work, <laughs> yeah, just by the position that they have. And another factor is that we have organized as an all-volunteer organization because we mm-hmm. really wanted to use our authentic, organic voices, not beholden to you know funders who may want us to take a moderate approach. And we also didn't want to compete with so many of the national organizations that are competing for resources um, because we do not have a gun industry that is backing our movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are limited resources. But as we, you know, as we are all aware, there are so many gun violence prevention organizations. So, um, you know, we have been a huge proponent of some type of consolidation um, um, so that we can have a unified, strong voice. That's amazing. Um, and as this podcast is about women within the movement, um, how do you see the role of women progressing? So you, you know, the comment you mentioned about there's still a lot of white men who are leading the movement and directing a lot of the messaging. How can women of all different backgrounds, so not just white women, but also women who are minorities, take more leadership within the movement? And do you think there's been a change since Sandy Hook and since you started your involvement with the movement in incorporating those different identities? I think there has been an effort to uh, incorporate the different identities, particularly women of color, Um, but they are vastly underrepresented um, given that uh, women of color are the ones that are losing their children um, at a higher rate, you know, than um, other races. So. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we hold that national vigil for all victims of gun violence every year, because it's an opportunity for us to bring 
um, all the families, including those families um, impacted by gun violence from Chicago and Oakland and Hartford and Bridgeport and other areas, urban areas across the country, um, to Washington, D.C., so that they, we can uplift their voices. Um, but there are not many leadership positions uh, mm-hmm. where women of a color are, um, uh, you know, are playing a huge role right now. And that definitely needs to change. Thank you to Elizabeth Cherish and Poe Murray. And thanks to all of you for joining us for this episode of MPOD. Our student producer today was Elizabeth Cherish, and our sound technician and editor is Stephen Mullen. Our original music is by Emily Cherish, and our logo was designed by Sarah McMahon. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at QUBMPOD. MPOD is a production of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast. I'm Julie Norman. Thank you for listening.